Hello and welcome to another edition of Dig Deep, the podcast about sport, faith, and life. I'm Brian Bolt, professor of kinesiology and men's golf coach at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I'm Chad Carlson, kinesiology professor and assistant men's basketball coach at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. And this podcast is the official podcast, I suppose, of the Second Global Congress for Sport and Christianity coming up in October 2019, a mere 18 or 19 months away. Chad, are you excited about that Congress? I can't wait. This time is going to fly by. And along the way, we're going to anticipate what we'll be doing at that Congress by looking at topics in sport and Christianity on this podcast. And we invite you to come along with us to find the Global uh, Congress website, which we'll mention a little later in the podcast and to interact with us at any time. This is a Congress that's for academics, certainly. A- academic folks, professors, uh, those at seminaries, those at universities really enjoy going to conferences and sharing their thoughts and ideas. But this is also a Congress that's for uh, practitioners, for people who are practicing sport, people who think about sport. It's for Christians who play, who coach, who administer, who officiate, who in some form or another are connected with sport. And so what we're doing here It's just having a conversation to get excited about what's going on in October of 2019. But before October of 2019, here it is, the beginning of April 2018. And we're thinking that spring may arrive at some point. It's very cold, very rainy, potentially very snowy here in West Michigan. Yet the sports calendar continues on. And we have arrived at a place that the signs of spring are upon us. The Masters Golf Tournament is coming up, so we're going to spend a little time talking about that. It's opening; It has been opening week, really, for Major League Baseball. And last night, the end of the men's college basketball season in the, the final game of the Final Four, where Villanova, the Villanova Wild, Wildcats, took home their second title in three years. This is a unique time in sport, and this is a unique event, really, uh, this March Madness. And it certainly was here for us in the state of Michigan in that one of our local state schools was in the finals. Villanova beat the University of Michigan, one of the flagship institutions of the state. And it was quite a game. It certainly has, has a lot of buildup for us. And, um, you know, this is, this is not unique to sport, not unique to big-time sport, that we have a lot of buildup to big national events. Um, but it's certainly worth discussing, knowing that we put so much of our energy and so much of our time into supporting one team or another, or supporting whoever we chose to win in these bracket pools that are so prominent across the United States. So you mentioned the brackets, and it has become sort of a national ritual, certainly in the United States, to complete a bracket. And in the bracket, you'll have all 64 teams. You have an opportunity to begin by filling in who will win in round one and round two, all the way down to the final four and then to the final game. This year, a lot of people tore up their brackets early. It was uh, a year of upsets. It was a year of Cinderella teams making their way through. One of them that made it to the final four was an 11th seed, Loyola of Chicago. And they had an interesting story as well. The fact that an 11th seed makes it to the final four is unique in and of itself. But this was a team that was characterized in, in many sense, in many senses by a person who was not even a, a part of the team, not even on the roster. And this is Sister Jean, their team chaplain, their longtime team chaplain, who supported the team, 
who spoke wisdom to these guys, who wrote letters to the players, who spoke to the team before games and after games, and really became an instant national celebrity. And Sister Jean, really for her fame, uh, fit well with the Cinderella story, this idea that somehow a team could make it through. It's pretty tempting for people of faith to start making connections between what our what we do in our faith lives and what may happen to us outside of uh, what we would consider to be, you know, an area of faith that we might even pray about, such as sport. Did Sister Jean help them win? Do you think it's a great question? Did Sister Jean help them win? Certainly, the the media was teasing that idea that Sister Jean brought God on the side of Loyola. It's interesting that we would tease that out. It certainly was a great storyline to think about, that we have this 98-year-old uh, uh, nun who's the chaplain of this team. Does she have real powers? There were two Catholic teams in the Final Four. That doesn't happen a lot. I mean, no, it's this it tournament of mostly public schools. Mm-hmm. And Sister Jean, who I think was savvy enough, even at her old age, to be able to to, to be quote-worthy in, uh, in the news media, who was asked, what did you give up for Lent? And she said, I gave up losing. Sister Jean had a lot of fun with this. She sure did. And that was a great indicator to all of us when we start thinking about really the place of sport in our lives. You know, many of us are drawn to sport for reasons that uh, go beyond the actual activity. There are certain things that we build up and we say, this is what sport does for us. But in the end, sport really is about the fun, the attraction how we're drawn to a particular activity, or in this case, being a fan of a particular activity or an event, and we like to affiliate. We talked about Michigan. The Michigan fans around here were very, very excited about this run, and they affiliated very closely. In fact, they used the the pronoun we to describe Michigan, whether they attended the school or not. It's interesting how we do this in sport, that certainly we win and and we have less reason or less uh, we're less drawn to connect with our teams if if we lose and but what is the connection there's, there's a lot of people that live in the state of michigan that follow michigan or michigan state the team that's doing better and and it's fun it's natural to do so we want to be a part of a winning team that just makes us feel better about ourselves and certainly michigan's run this year was a great run and it's memorable and they've proven themselves to be a, a really great team with a coach who's pretty astute and can get a lot out of his players and so it's fun to follow it's fun to follow for us because it's our team in some sense then, right? So we all like that, right? We really like affiliating with a winner. We have a harder time affiliating with a loser. In fact, we tend to use other pronouns pronouns like uh, they. They're terrible. They had a bad season. We extract ourselves from them. And then in moments of victory, we might climb back on the proverbial bandwagon. Yeah, there's this interesting sort of shallow uh, duality there. It's, it's us versus them. And, and if we win, we win. And, and if if our team loses, it, it's not our team. It's they, it's them. And so we separate ourselves. We, we choose, uh, in some sense, to follow winners more so, more, more ardently than we follow losers. And I think we'll come back to that when we talk about other sports. But in this particular case, I think we're also intrigued with this idea that somehow there was a faith element mixed in, and we were tempted to, to draw connections or conclusions based on the affiliation of Sister Jean now with the Loyola team. Now, she was an authentic participant. She was an actual team chaplain. 
She knew the players on the team. She knew the coach. She interacted with the players and probably served in a chaplain role, supporting players, helping them through difficult times, uh, giving pastoral care, giving advice, all those sorts of things, which are really excellent additions in the lives of an athlete or a student athlete. And so it provides a great opportunity. At the same time, I'm sure she prayed for those players. And we wonder, did she pray for a win? Yeah, what do you pray about as a, as a team chaplain? Uh, do you pray for a, a, a win? That's, that's one of the, the biggest ethical questions I think that Christians face regarding sport. Is it okay to pray for victory? Did she pray for safety of the players? That might be something too, and yet it seems a little bit shallow to pray for safety and then have these players go out and throw their bodies around the court in somewhat dangerous ways for, for two hours. What, what do you pray for? And in fact, praying for safety has become a fairly standard prayer for athletes and student athletes and for this, this phrase that is often thrown out, playing to the best of my ability, right? We want to be able to get to maybe the edge of praying for a win, but we feel a little uncomfortable saying God would really like to win. I wonder if perhaps God would just like to know that. I wonder about that too. Maybe that's the best way that we should go about praying in sport Instead of, like you said, sort of tiptoeing around this issue, I don't want to ask for victory because it sounds selfish. So, so God, can you, can you allow me to, to be a blessing to your kingdom, to the greatest of my ability? <laughs> right. Which can I, I can do also you, if I win. Can I play for your glory? And your glory will be enhanced if I win. If I win. And if I play well in our victory. Yes. You know, it's a, it's a difficult conundrum. But as we consider this problem, I think it's best for us to understand what sport really is and where it exists in human life. And sport does really exist in a subculture all its own. And that subculture is described in ways that make us kind of uncomfortable as Christians. So in that subculture, I am being quite selfish. I have decided that I am going to do everything I can to take home the prize. And I'm going to take it really, Chad, from you. Sure. And when, when we are praying in that way, and so much of our mindset sometimes in sport has to do with me and with how I will perform. And that in and of itself probably gets us away from mature prayers that, that should be on our hearts, on our minds, even as we go into these emotionally charged events that are, that are sporting events. So the other end of that is when I talk to Christians, they'll say, you know, God doesn't care. God has bigger fish to fry, they'll say. And I'm not sure that's the case entirely, that God doesn't care. The idea that we're told over and over again in scripture is that God cares about all of our lives. He cares about our anxieties for sure. And things that bring us anxiety, he says to cast on him. And so in sport, there is a great possibility that there are anxieties that we're carrying that can be freed up by giving it over to God. We are told in all things, present a request to God. And so to say that God has bigger fish to fry, that's true. He does. But to say that, that, that God doesn't care about the things that we care about, the things that we are involved in, seems also equally untrue. And, uh, and, and sport is something that we care about. But do we care about it too much? Very possible that we care about it too much. And the desire to be a part of something, to affiliate with something, can cloud our judgment. And it can make us make decisions that we may regret in the long run and more likely 
have us rationalize and say that this uh, is what God would want me to be doing. In fact, sometimes we're sort of building up this idea that God has put me in this place for this particular purpose. And it's our purpose, not necessarily God's purpose. That's absolutely right. I think about my own sporting experiences and, and sports spectator experiences, and I'm often not at my best in terms of my behavior regarding sport. And so often as a fan, I, I, I hate the opponent. I treat the opponents in ways, I think things about the opponents in ways that are not healthy and certainly are not Christ-serving. And I think about myself as an athlete and even a recreational athlete, the ways in which I know I sin because of my impulsiveness when I'm a part of sport that, uh, that just leads me to believe that so often I enter the, the figurative arena of sport without a healthy heart, without my heart in the right spot. And that's something that needs to be, I think, uh, sort of a, a, pre- a precursor to our engagement in sport. The, the psalmist asks us to search our hearts, and in sport, we're required to do the same. It's very often that we're deceiving ourselves in sport. And just the ability to take a moment and pause and check again where our hearts are in sport, because there's so much emotion. We throw our full lives into sport. And St. Paul, in uh, many cases in the New Testament, referred to sport, not necessarily to endorse it, but he recognized just the holistic aspect of sport. He said the athlete gives everything physically, emotionally, mentally to the prize. And he compared that total immersion to the life of a Christian. It is, in some sense, the, the, the fight that we fight. It's the race that we run. So often, uh, after our sporting events is when we take the time to, to reflect and to think and to process and, and to ponder. And we so often do, do, do that after losses. Mm. Um, but it seems that we've got it backwards in some sense. That before entering the arena, before entering the game, before turning on the television, whatever else, that's the point in time we need to pause and see where we are to be able to enter those in healthy ways. I think that's a fantastic advice. And we've waded into some pretty deep theological waters here. Things that are difficult to figure out, difficult for us and difficult for anyone else. But I think the the great opportunity of this podcast and just the Congress that we're getting ready for gives us this chance to be able to have these conversations and start to unpack some of the things that we assume about sport. Well, let's, let's go back to the game last night, Chad. What, what did you think? Did you enjoy it? Were you rooting hard for Michigan? Were you uh, surprised by the, the new superstar Dante? Yeah. Well, he was a fun guy to watch. He I was. Tell you, he was great. You know, um, as a basketball coach myself, I, I tend to watch that sport in a, in a way different from other sports that I watch just because I feel like I know it better and I'm able to be a little bit more critical. Mm-hmm. I am not a fan of the University of Michigan. That's one of the, one of the, one of the ways in which I, I confess my sin to God, that I, I just have <laughs> hatred in being my heart. Being a fan of Michigan or not being a not fan Not being of a fan okay. and being an anti-fan. Uh, uh, the word is hater. I don't want to use that word, although sometimes that's the case. So I feel really bad about some of that, but I think this this Michigan team had a really nice spirit about them. They did. And so did the Villanova team. And and it was fun to watch. And it's fun to watch specifically when one player does some pretty remarkable things. So Dante DiVincenzo, the Villanova sixth man who comes in and sort of takes over the game, received all kinds of credit after the game for the fact that he was the guy that Michigan had no answers for. 
this is is part of what makes makes sport such a draw for me at least. And I think for a lot of people is that it's the ability to express the limits of humanity. You know, the abilities of what we can do, and um, and yet it also I think shows a way in which we we tend to individualize what goes on in sports. So Dante, the new hero, was able to do some things individually, but but boy, he was still playing as part of a team, you know, and. And Villanova as a team still won and still played well enough to win. He's the star. He reaps the most benefits, but still, play that that team. That that team was good. And that's the beauty of a, a team sport. And I coach as well. I coach a golf team. And many people will think of uh, golf as an individual sport. You're actually, you rarely see your own teammates while you're competing in golf. You're on separate holes. And really, at the end, you all come together and do some math and figure out who won, which is a little bit, it sounds like it doesn't have a lot of drama, but it really does. Uh, I'll take your word for it. it, Well, come on now. I'm going to convert you. You're going to become a golf fan. (laughs) So let's talk about the Masters. Have you ever uh, watched the Masters on television? I sure have. And when you watch it, what do you like about the game of golf? I am not a, what, what I can I would not consider myself a golf person. And yet, I love sports. I will watch, you know, a really exciting playoff in golf if I know what's going on. Mm. I'll watch a major event. Um, part of the fun for me, at least, you know, growing up in my early adult years, was knowing that I could turn on the television on a Sunday, and if golf was on, there would be a guy in a red shirt that I'd be able to watch, and that was the guy that pulled me in. It was Tiger Woods. Now you're uh, really outing yourself as one of those fans, one of those Tiger Woods only golf fans. And there's a lot of Tiger Woods only golf fans out there. Uh, There's a number of really good players that may win this tournament. Dustin Johnson, Jordan Spieth, uh, Justin Rose has played really well, Jason Day, some really excellent players that have over the last seven, eight, nine years really made a name for themselves and prepared themselves to be able to win. Bubba Watson has won recently. Ian Poulter just last week had to win to get into the Masters, showing a lot of heart to be able to do that. So it's going to be a dramatic moment one way or the other. But let's just say it straight up. When Tiger Woods is involved, it's just different. I absolutely agree, which is why I haven't watched a whole lot of golf recently. I wouldn't say that that's just because of Tiger Woods, but certainly he brings something added. What is that? I can't describe it. What is that? What is it about golf and, and really maybe sport in general that lends itself so much to one particular star? And why is it that golf has such a hard time with its ratings being, being low when Tiger doesn't play? It's really an amazing phenomenon. I think what you talked about uh, with the drama of the moment in sport, there is no script. And so you get an opportunity to turn on the television and wait and see what unfolds. And no one around can tell you what's going to happen. But Tiger gave us an opportunity to just experience excellence at an entirely new level. He brought in a variety of different types of fans that had not known a whole lot about the game, but they were drawn to a person that could seem to defy what seems to be a norm in golf and that is that it's very difficult to play with a lead and it's very difficult to be consistently excellent in golf it seems to come and go on its own whims you'll see one player that looks extremely hot one week and then the next week they don't make the cut 
the difficulty of golf is usually brought home if a person picks up a club. So I was just talking to someone the other day, an excellent athlete, very frustrated that he couldn't be successful at golf. Many athletes, when they step onto the golf course, when they pick up a golf club, think, well, the ball is sitting still. There should be no problem for me to hit it from here to there. I'm strong. I'm athletic. I can do that. Golf is, in many ways, unnatural. I coach uh, a team, but I also spend two or three weeks in the summer running golf camps for kids, and I might see hundreds of kids over the course of a summer. Very, very few of those kids could be described as natural. Most of them have swings that need to be changed or altered. A little like jump shots. Every once in a while, a kid will come along that actually has the appropriate jump shot form. Somehow, somewhere, that child has that ability. Tiger was a combination of both. He had the absolute genetic potential to be an excellent golfer, and he was extremely well-trained along the way. And he had a lot of competitive fire. Now, a lot of that competitive fire was largely dysfunctional, and that resulted in his fall from grace, and it gives us an explanation for, I think, not only why he had such difficulty, but also why in some ways we're, again, attracted to him. So I think you've put your finger on one of the reasons why I'm, I don't see myself as a golf person. When I do play golf, and I have a lot of family members that play a lot of golf, so when I play golf with them or, or friends or, or whoever else, uh, it really bothers me to know that I can run faster than every one of them that I'm playing, that I can, I believe I can jump higher, <laughs> that I could run farther, that I'm stronger than all of them. And yet that doesn't help me in golf so much. So I, I appreciate you articulating that for me. When I watch golf now as someone who's a Christian, but maybe not a golf person, you mentioned Tiger Woods fall from grace. Mm. As we watch the masters this weekend, who should I be rooting for? Who should I, as a, as an, an, unknowledgeable person in terms of golf. What should I be thinking about in terms of who I choose to root for? And so I think when we start to figure out ways or reasons to follow a particular person or to root for a particular person, and we do that analytically, we've sort of lost in many ways what sport really is. There are many people that were completely offended and appalled and disappointed in Tiger Woods in the life that he lived, in his infidelity from his wife, uh, in he, he seemed arrogant, he seemed aloof, he seemed off-putting. Uh, we were drawn to his excellence. At the same time, there were many people who just said, you know what, Tiger, I, I just cannot support who he is as a person. But what's really interesting is both of those things seem to play out in human history. This ability to follow excellence, but also to determine, we want our excellent people to also be, or our excellent players to also be excellent people. And that may not be a fair expectation. If you go back even to the first uh, organized games that we can describe, which would be the ancient Olympic games, even back then, even though there were uh, a variety of different warring city-states that would come together to play in these particular, to compete in these particular contests, there were a lot of the same elements that we see today. There were heroes and there were villains. A couple of them come to mind. There were, there was a Milo of Croton. 
Now, Milo was an excellent Olympic competitor. He had many uh, victories, and he was a wrestler, and wrestling was considered uh, one of the more popular sports. Wrestling and uh, the sprinting were probably the, the number one and two sports that were followed. Milo was also considered to be a terrible human being. Nobody liked Milo. He, he bragged a lot about his abilities, about his strength. There were these legends about the, what he's able to do. He could, he could put, tie a cord around his head and just by, you know, clenching his temples could snap the cord. So that some of these outrageous stories about Milo. And yet when Milo died, uh, he was moving, removing a wedge from a tree and his hands got stuck in the tree he was ultimately eaten by wolves because no one could help him. Now that is a villain, right? And yet we know his name. No matter who you are as a person, your excellence can, be, can help you prevail and help you attract people to you. Now on the other side, we have Diagoras. Diagoras of Rhodes was also a wrestler, also had many uh, competitive victories. But Diagoras was known for something the Greeks called arete. And arete essentially means excellence, which has to be the prerequisite. We're drawn to winners. One way or the other, we're drawn to winners. Excellence, but without hubris. So this idea that there is some humility, some recognition, maybe some gratitude for the gifts and skills that a person has, it seems to me, whether it's real or not, people are perceiving gratitude from Tiger. They're seeing Tiger smile. They're seeing Tiger relax. They're seeing Tiger be competitive, but they're also seeing Tiger in a, in a new human element. And I think people are going to really be drawn to him if he's able to continue in this second uh, comeback. Yeah, that word arete is so interesting, isn't it? That it's, it's, it embodies human excellence, but also, you know, sort of excellence of, of character as well. There's, there's sort of a, a virtue element there. Mm. And maybe that's a part of it that, that Tiger was once broken and and maybe has some more uh, redeeming qualities to him right now that might draw us in, that, that show a little bit more of, of the arete. Are there other golfers that we, we could juxtapose him to that might help us understand some of this? So Tiger's won four Masters. Yeah, his last, for those of you that are not golf fans, there are four majors in professional golf that are considered sort of a, the tournaments to win. One of them is the Masters, and there's the U.S. Open and the PGA Championship, and probably uh, the one maybe um, with the most prestige would be called the Open, the British Open. So all four of them are uh, where some of the best players really harness their energy to try to win. One of the winners of the Masters, actually a two-time winner of the Masters, is Bubba Watson. Now, Bubba Watson is an outspoken Christian. Bubba Watson's Twitter handle has the word Christian in it. Uh, and he is, he's known for being a Christian. At the same time, Bubba Watson seems to put people off. It's interesting that all of my players, all the players on my team, even though Bubba Watson is excellent, hits the ball a long way, can move it from right to left, he's a charismatic figure, uses a, a, a pink shaft in his driver, switches golf balls all the time, you would think Bubba Watson might be the kind of guy that attracts young people to the sport. And yet none of my players 
are drawn to him at all. There's something about his character, about the way he uh, experiences other people that is off-putting. And there's something about Tiger that they're drawn to. And so when you see these two, you have Bubba Watson, who is a known Christian. And these players on my team would say, we would want um, our athletes to be Christian. We teach at a Christian college. And so we might be drawn to that, on that in that sense. But somehow, maybe there's an inauthenticity. Maybe there's something there that doesn't feel right. But in sports, we tend to make those sorts of judgments. And that will happen again this weekend. Everyone was drawn to Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer had this ability to connect with people in the game of golf, which is very rare. He had an, oppor he had an opportunity to uh, interact with fans, and he took that opportunity every chance he had. In fact, I have a, an Arnold Palmer story. Our team was down in uh, Orlando for a spring break trip, and we went to Arnold Palmer's tournament at Bay Hill. Arnold Palmer was still living. He died very recently. And we were standing on 18, kind of behind the ropes, but we had just played a tournament, so we were wearing our team shirts, and so we looked like a golf team. Arnold Palmer drove by in a golf cart with his security guards, very old man at this time, noticed that we were wearing our golf shirts, and one by one, he had us all come through the ropes, walk over to him, shake his hand, he signed something for each of us, and sent us on our way. He didn't have to do that. We didn't even ask him to do that. He found us. And I think... That sort of connection is what we all want in sport. And when we're fans, we kind of like the idea of affiliating in any way that we can. That's such a great story. And golf is such a great example of that type of ability to connect, whether it's a, a, an actual tangible connection like you guys had with Arnold Palmer, actually shaking his hand, seeing him in the flesh, or this sort of connection that we can tell that might be at a distance through a television screen or something like that. And yet, golf isn't the only example of sport. It seems that every sport, we tend to heroize people. We tend to put athletes on a, a pedestal. We do. And this is really, it's sort of a, a, a role model type of thing where we, we tend to act like or we tend to cheer for those that, that we believe we would be like or want to be like in some way. And it's interesting to think about that and the role of the one individual in the Christian faith that we're all called to be like and to model ourselves after. And when we think about how we idolize athletes, that word idol is loaded, right? It reminds us of one of the main dangers that is mentioned over and over again in Scripture, and that is putting people or things above our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so there's this weird tension in that we love sport, and we may feel attracted or affiliated with a particular athlete. And yet we recognize that these are gifts to us in, the, in this abundant world in which we live. Gifts that we have to hold at bay. That we need to form somewhat of a detachment from so that we can live in ways that bring honor and glory to our Savior. That's absolutely right. Thinking about that word, idol. And, and why that's, that's a no-no in, in Scripture. Mm. Um, we certainly want to see Jesus as a, a role model. We want to try to act more and more like him. We're called to do so. And yet, he has this element that no, no athlete will ever have in our lives, and that he was our Savior, first and foremost. Mm. We see him as our Savior. That gives him the right, the platform, 
um, the space in our lives to see him as a role model, something that Tiger Woods, something that Bubba Watson, something that Dante DiVincenzo will never, ever have. They'll never come close to. And it's hard to separate that yet when we see Jesus as someone we want to emulate. And we also have these other models in our lives, sporting or otherwise, that we want to emulate. Jesus is also the one that died for our sins, something that no one else can or will do. Well, these events, the Masters, the end of March Madness, they happen right around a certain time of the year that uh, Christians will recognize, which is the end of Lent and Easter. And we just had this opportunity just this last weekend to walk through the Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday worship celebrations, reminding us really of the the good news of the gospel. And that good news, in many ways, frees us up to participate in sport. Uh, God has taken away any responsibility that we have through the sacrifice of his son. He's given us an opportunity to participate in this life, knowing full well that when we think about these small-scale victories, he has already won the ultimate victory. It was won at the cross and the victory over death and resurrection. And for that, we have a celebratory spirit, and we also have the power of the Holy Spirit to work in and through us to do some of those things that you talked about earlier, to be able to reflect ahead of time about our affiliation and our engagement and potentially our idolization of sport or athletes. This was the weekend. And this was on our, our, our Twitter post at Sport Theology this weekend. This was the weekend for Christians, whether you love Michigan basketball or not, whether you love basketball or not, whether you love Tiger Woods or not, whether you love golf or not, whether you are involved in sport or not, this was the weekend. We celebrate all that happened in Jesus' life without which we would not be uh, able to experience what we hope to experience. And fortunately, it wasn't up to us. It was not dependent on our own will. It was God's will. And he intervened and took control. And when he sent his son, he sent his son to reach out to us and to find us. And in many ways, we are constantly putting ourselves in a place to be found and to respond to our Savior. In sport, we have this opportunity to feel this exhilaration, to feel this celebration. It's a very much an earthly level celebration. It's a, it's a celebration that uh, signifies kind of who we are as humans and how God made us. And we can feel gratitude about that. And at the same time, recognize that in the big picture, Jesus has died and risen and our sins are no longer held against us. And we have this communion with our God. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dig Deep. We plan to release about one per week, so when they come out, we would be delighted if you check them out. We also want to invite you to the website for the Second Global Congress for Sport and Christianity. That website is housed uh, at Calvin College right now, and the web address is Calvin dot edu slash events slash 2gcsc that's calvin c-a-l-v-i-n dot edu slash events 
slash 2GCSC. Thanks very much, and we'll talk to you next time.